0: Would you please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 15? Psalm 15. It's been about six months since we've looked at the Psalms, although Brad has done a fantastic job in taking us through an overview of the Psalms in Sunday School these past few weeks. It's been great and really helpful. As we look at Psalm 15, we need to recognize that this is a Psalm that's connected to Psalm 14. Now, not directly, as in breaking one Psalm into two, like Psalms 8 and 9 and a few other pairs likely were, but they are connected in several ways. First, by authorship. David is the author of both of these psalms. And second, by theme, by way of contrast, Psalm 14 describes the way of the wicked, and Psalm 15 Psalm fifteen describes the righteous man. Thirdly, Psalm 14 is a psalm for the choir master. That is a psalm for public worship. And Psalm 15 opens by asking what kind of man is allowed to come to worship? What kind of person is worthy to come before the Lord and to dwell with Him? The rest of Psalm 15, then, is an answer to this opening question. One more introductory comment. As with many of the Psalms in in the first book, that is, Psalms uh, Psalms 1 through 41... There is also a connection between Psalm 15 and Psalms 1 and 2. It seems as though many of the Psalms um, in each book, there's five books of the Psalms, um, they, they tie back to the opening um, of each book. So in, this case it seems as, so in this case, it seems as though Psalm 15 is an expansion of the first two verses of Psalm 1, which says, uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what Psalm uh, 1 verses 1 through 2 describes is a man living righteously, and what Psalm 15 does is flesh out with specifics the way that this righteous man lives, and what the end result will be, and that is he will dwell with the Lord. So let's stand together now again as we, out of respect for the word of God, as we read Psalm 15. Verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, and who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this perfect word. We thank you that you have promised to change us by, it, that you have promised not to leave your people in your sin, but that you will sanctify us, that you will cause us to become more holy. We pray that even as your word is preached this morning, that you would accomplish this in us. We pray that you would cause us to love you more to love the truth of your word more, and to desire to become more holy. We pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would be glorified, that you would meet us here in your word and change us, that you would now prepare our hearts and teach us to love your law. Help us to submit to every word of your scripture. Work in us by your word a delight for you and a love for your law because it comes from your very hand. Lord, make us new. Help us by your grace to set aside everything that stands in the way of hearing and obeying you. I pray for myself that all I say is pleasing in your sight, that the words I preach would be faithful to the sense and meaning of the text. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I already mentioned that this psalm opens with a question and then answers the question. So let's then briefly outline uh, the structure of this psalm and, and, why this is imp- and look at why this is important. I'll start with the importance first. Um, Why do we look at structure? It's important because this is Hebrew poetry we're looking at, and in Hebrew poetry, poets don't rhyme words. They rhyme ideas, and then they build off of these ideas in order to drive home a point. In this psalm, we have a whole bunch of couplets, two paired ideas, stating and then restating an idea for emphasis. The first idea is the question stated in verse 1, who can come before the Lord? Now, that's not the actual text. That's what the text means. Um the answer is, is then found in the six couplets that follow. And they run then from the beginning of verse one until the second to last line of the psalm. It is this kind of person who may come before the Lord. The last line is not a couplet, and I think it's all the more powerful for it. The kind of man described in this psalm will not be moved. He will not be cast out. He will stand before the Lord and in the end see his face. He will This righteous man, to call back to verse 6 of Psalm 2, he will dwell unmovable with the anointed Son King of God on God's holy hill. Now, an obvious but necessary thing we must bring out before we begin is that no one fulfills these requirements but Jesus. Christ is the anointed Son King of God who has been established on Zion, on God's holy hill. Each of these couplets points to Jesus, and each of these couplets is fulfilled by him. We must recognize this, and we must understand that in Jesus, because of his furnished work, we are called to conform to his image by the work of the Spirit on our lives. This only works if we understand that we do not come to look like the righteous man here on our own. We cannot white-knuckle our way there. It must be grace or nothing. We must trust in Christ and be changed by him or nothing. This is a lot of law we're looking at this morning. And we must understand that we are not saved by following the law. We are saved by grace and so enabled to follow the law. So let's look now at verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now at first reading, it may seem as though David is asking, how can sinful man be reconciled to the holy, righteous, and just God? The answer is, of course, what we've already said, that there is only one way. That is, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way to be made right with God than this. We only have one way of access, one mediator, as Paul, to- Paul told Timothy in-, in 1 Timothy 2. Of this, there is no doubt. This is the way that the Old Testament saints were saved looking forward, and the way we are saved looking back. All of us saved saints looking to Jesus Christ the Lord. But I do not think justification is what was on the mind of David as he asked this question. I think this because of how David answers the question he asked. He answers this question with character traits. And we know that no one is justified before God by anything that they have done, but by what Jesus Christ accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. I keep banging this drum because it is our tendency, or at least my tendency, to see the law and then try to grit my teeth and fulfill it forgetting that it is not I, but Christ in me, that is my hope. So the question then that David is asking, especially as people come to worship the Lord is what is the character of the man or woman of whom God approves? Or to ask it another way, what does a true believers life look like? How does someone who has been justified live? What is their character like? How do they speak? How do they conduct themselves? What are their values? How is their integrity? How do they use money? And it it is not by accident that these traits are all covered in the couplets throughout the psalm. Each of these things is a picture into the state of the righteous person's heart and their lives. They're not justified by doing these things, but if they have been justified, their lives will look more and more like this. As James Montgomery Boyce said, no one is ever justified apart from regeneration. And regeneration means that the Spirit of God is at work in us to bring us into increasing conformity to the character of Christ. The life of the true believer will come to look more and more like the life of one following the moral law of God. We are saved to do the good works prepared for us beforehand. We are saved that we might fulfill the great commission. We are saved so that we might glorify God in our works. The question in verse 1 is also an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, how do we approach God? How do we come to worship on the Lord's Day morning? Do we come in reverence and expectation of meeting together with our God? Do we understand that when we come through these doors, we're entering into a place that's different than any other we step in all week? Do we prepare our hearts for worship? Our God is a holy God, one in whose presence angels cover their face and their feet and continually cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As members of Christ's church, as his people, we should then prepare ourselves before we come to worship. Not just the 10 minutes before the worship starts, before the service starts, but our entire lives. We live our lives before the face of God, and we should be diligent then to watch our walk. A profession of faith proves nothing if the life does not match. There are no true Christians that say Jesus is my Savior, but he is not yet my Lord. As Christians, all our lives are subject to King Jesus. As he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now is the time to examine ourselves. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you failed to meet the test. As we come before the Lord, we must ask ourselves, are we really in Christ? Does our life show it? Do we increasingly see our sin as wicked and the glorious grace of God and Jesus as wonderful? We are not saved by the way we live. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But if you are living in active disobedience, you must ask yourself these these questions. Ask them and answer them now, today. Call upon the Lord today. Tomorrow it may be too late. Ask the Lord to produce these qualities in you in greater and greater purity. That should be a prayer for all of us. And as we look at the answer to David's question, we need to remind ourselves that what we see here are representative answers. This means that the, what we see in, in verses two through five is not all inclusive, but it does give us a good picture of a godly man. So let's look at verse two, the first couplet, the first pairing. He who walks blamelessly, and does what is right. This shows us the character of the righteous person. First, he walks blamelessly. The Hebrew here for blameless means soundness. His life, his walk is sound. There is no rottenness in him. He does not do what he should not do. The righteous man lives with integrity. We get the contrast to this righteous man in verse three of the last Psalm, Psalm 14. If you look up the page, you'll see Psalm 14, verse three, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This kind of wicked corrupt man is not sound. There is rottenness in him. It may not always show but but it is there in the same way that an outside of an apple can look good and ripe and f- firm but the inside is full of rot and those gross brown soft spots. The righteous though is sound all through. He is morally well-rounded. There are not these kind of glaring spots of rot in his life. He strives to keep all the commandments. What is more, he does not go back and forth in his commitment to them. He is the same Monday through Saturday as he is on Sunday morning. So then if the first part of this couplet shows us that the righteous man does not do what he should not do, the second half shows us that the righteous man does what he should do. He does what is right. There are two ways to disobey. The first is to actively disobey. This is what we think of when we think about breaking the Ten Commandments. To actively disobey would be to murder, or covet, or commit adultery, or idolatry. When we have not murdered anyone, we have not stolen, we have not committed adultery, we think we've fulfilled these requirements of the law. But there is another side to the law. When we are commanded not to do something by the Lord, the implication is that there is also something that we must do. There is the sin that is expressly forbidden, but along with that there is a duty required of us. The Puritans are great at this. Just go read them. It's awesome. For example, the sixth commandment is that we shall not kill. That is what is forbidden. And the duty required, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we must also love our neighbor as ourselves, show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and kindness towards him, to prevent his his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. So the righteous person has a habit of life that fulfills both of these aspects, the positive and negative obedience to the law. Calvin says this, this is what the Lord requires. In the first place, he requires sincerity. In other words, that men should conduct themselves in all their affairs with singleness of heart and without sinful craft or cunning. Secondly, he requires justice. That is to say, that they should study to do good to their neighbors, hurt nobody, and abstain from all wrong. Now, of course, we do not do this perfectly, but the person who has been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who did all of these these things perfectly, will come to look more and more like the one who saved him. Our Savior lived doing both everything he should have and nothing he should not have. He perfectly fulfilled every aspect of the law, and those he died to save, those who have been redeemed will show the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. The next couple is found across the end of verse 2 and the first phrase of verse 3. It concerns speech. And speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. Here again, we have a positive aspect of righteousness and a negative aspect. He who speaks truth in his heart. He positively says what is true, and he means it. Here again, we have a contrast with the previous psalm. Look at Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says, in his heart, there is no God. The fool may say uh, otherwise outwardly, but in his heart he is corrupt. The righteous one, the one justified before God by the blood of the Lamb, is different. His word and and his heart line up. They are the same. There is no double-mindedness. There is no deceit. Spurgeon says of this, Saints not only desire to love and speak truth with their lips, but they seek to be true within. They will not lie even in their closet, even in the closet of their hearts, for God is there to listen. Another way to say this is a classic compliment. He says what he means, and he means what he says. He's not just saying what others want to hear or using speech to flatter or manipulate for his own advantage. The truth here means more than just a lack of falsehood. It certainly includes that, but the sense of the word goes beyond accuracy but trustworthiness. Boyce says of this, truth is something you can count on. Therefore, the one who speaks truth is a trustworthy person. That is why God the Father is described as the true God. Jesus termed himself the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is named the Spirit of Truth, and the word of God is called truth. Because of this, a person can rely on God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God's word, because they are trustworthy and true and reliable. The other half of this couplet, who does not slander with his tongue, is a mirror image of the first. A righteous person will tell the truth, and and a righteous person will not slander or tell lies, or to be very specific, the righteous person will not gossip. If you're reading from the King James, the word translated as slander in many others is translated backbiter. An old Puritan observed that the Hebrew for this word means literally to spy out. So backbiters and slanderers go around looking for faults and secrets so that they can have something to talk about at the coffee shop. This kind of talk tears down the body of Christ. It does not build it up. Gossip is deadly to a church. Gossip ruins reputations. It ruins relationships, and it puts souls in danger. It is a serious sin, but it's an easy sin to fall into. Sometimes the gossip begins with an earnest desire to help the one being gossiped about. There may be actual sin in their lives that needs to be addressed, but to talk about someone's sin with another person is not what we're commanded to do. Jesus said, go to your brother if he sinned against you. Go to him first. Or if you see there's something that is a problem in his life, after having taken the log out of your eye, go to him and help him take out what is in his. But don't go around talking to others about what you see in your brother's eye. Don't slander him. Don't ruin his reputation. Be loving, not self-serving. And part of being loving, part of being righteous, is not just not beginning the gossip, but ending any that comes your way. Do not take part in gossip. Run, bite your tongue before you tear down another Christian. That's not to say we don't correct errors, but correcting errors and gossip are two very different things. One commentator from 400 years ago wrote, Pity your brethren. Let it be enough that godly ministers and Christians are loaded with reproaches by wicked men. There is no need that you should you should combine with them in this diabolical work. The next couplet is found in the rest of verse 3 and can, and concerns conduct and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This couplet is almost like a double couplet with the last one. The last one concerned the words we speak and this one moves from speech to actions. Just as we speak out of the abundance of the heart, our actions often follow our words. If we speak truth and do not slander, we should also not do evil to our neighbor. That is anyone we come in contact with. The righteous man will do no evil to a neighbor. He will not cut someone down to get ahead. He will not cheat or steal or murder him. The righteous man will also not hold on to hate or unforgiveness or covet what is not his. He will treat others with respect. The second part of the couplet, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, is kind of a tough translation. The literal meaning is to cast the slur. Now we know what a slur is. It's to call someone a bad name but slurs can and often do go beyond words to how we treat a person. The question for us then is, do we treat others with respect, especially those who seem to have a less important position in life than we think we do? How do we treat those who are in service jobs? Do we talk down to them? Do we snub them when we see them out and about? Are we mean? The question for the children, especially those who are a little older, is how do you treat your parents or your siblings? They are your closest neighbors. Do you treat them with respect, even when you don't agree with them? Are you kind? Do you defer to your parents' wisdom? To my shame, there were times I did not treat my parents with the respect they deserved because I thought I knew better. And you know what? There were times I may have known more, but that did not give me the right to talk down to them or to treat them with contempt. To do this is not only to break this qualification for the righteous person, it is to break the fifth commandment. This couplet tells us that, that to do these things, to do evil to a neighbor or to slur others displeases God and is a barrier to fellowship with him. And to continue in these sins is to continue on the path of judgment. The fourth couplet then is found in the first half of verse four. It concerns what a righteous person values in others. Who does a righteous person look up to? Who are his role models? Verse four, in whose eyes a vile person is described, but who honors those who fear the Lord. We get a hint of how to interpret this phrase, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, from the rest of the couplet. We are not free to despise people as image bearers of God, but we must not look up to those who have set themselves against God. The the version of, of scripture you're following along with may have the word reprobate instead of vile person. This word describes one who is truly and fully hardened against the Lord one who will not submit to his rule, one who stands in defiance of his creator and says, no, my will be done. We must not look up to them. We must not honor them for what they do or for how they live. We may be in a position that we have to respect the office they hold, but we do not have to honor the character of the person who holds that office. And we do not have to approve of everything they say or do. In fact, we must not approve of evil, no matter who is doing it, no matter if they are on our team or not. We can never call what is evil good, and we must never call what is good evil. Calvin says the meaning of the psalmist is that the children of God freely judge of every man's doing, and they will not stoop to vile flattery for the purpose of obtaining favor with men, and thereby encourage the wickedness, the wicked in their wickedness. So we are not to honor the wicked, but we must, however, respect those who honor and love and fear the Lord. We must respect them as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter their background, no matter their status. That's what James, the brother of Jesus, is getting at in James chapter, uh, James chapter 2, the first four verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and while the poor while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Calvin again says of this, let us learn then not to value men by their estate or their money or their honors that will fade, but to hold in estimation godliness or fear of the, of the Lord. And certainly no man will ever truly apply his mind to the study of godliness who does not at the same time reverence the servants of God. As on the other hand, we love and the love we bear to them incites us to imitate them in holiness of life couplet number 5 it's the last phrase of verse 4 who swears to his own hurt and does not change this couplet is incomplete but by that i mean the, the reader has to supply the logical ending not that there's something missing in the text the ending to this couplet would be something like he who swears to keep his word at all times and then does not change even when it hurts who does that What kind of person stands behind and holds to his word even when it becomes inconvenient or even harmful to do so? That kind of person is very rare. That kind of person has always been rare, although it seems as though they are even more scarce today. I try not to use movie illustrations because chances are that not everyone has seen the movie. But given the fact that the movie I'm about to reference has been out for 77 years, I feel like there's a possibility that at least a handful of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't, you should. It's great. Not theologically sound at all, but it's still a great story of dogged faithfulness. This, this movie is about, about a man named George, who during the 1930s wants nothing more than to get out of the small town that he's in. But circumstances keep him, in, keep him there. Throughout the movie, he's presented with several chances to do the easy thing and run away, but he stays. He keeps his word. He fulfills his responsibilities, even when it's hard, and, the, and it's the very last thing that he wants to do. He stays to help run the family bank instead of going to college when his father suddenly dies. And he stays when it's his turn for college, but his brother has an opportunity at a better job in a different city. He uses his own wedding money to save the bank from collapse when it's in trouble. He stays and keeps his word even when it hurts. Of course, the only one who truly swore to his own hurt and did not change was Jesus Christ himself. In his his humanity, Jesus did not want to face the cross. He did not went to face the full and unmixed wrath of God against the sin of everyone who would ever believe. We read in Matthew 26 that he said to them, his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Spurgeon said, our blessed savior swore to his own hurt but how gloriously he stood to his word. What a comfort to us that he does not change, and what an example to us to be scrupulously and precisely exact in fulfilling our covenants with others. The most far-seeing trader may enter into engagements which turn out to be serious losses, but whatever else he loses, if he keeps his honor, his losses will be bearable. If that be lost, all is lost. The last couple reveals the view the righteous one has about money but it is also an outworking of the integrity that we saw in the last couple in the view of people he has in the one before that. He who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, this is not a simple denunciation against lending money at interest at all. Instead, it's another character issue, a righteousness issue. The righteous man does not use his money greedily. The reason we can say this is, first, the Old Testament prohibited earning interest only in the case of Jews taking interest from other Jews. That's from Deuteronomy. It's a prohibition against usury, or as we call it, predatory lending or loan sharking. And second, if all interest was evil, Jesus wouldn't have used it as an example, a positive example in his parables. If it was always forbidden and sinful, to use earning interest as a parable would have been been like using drug dealing as a teaching illustration. We see a great example of what not to do with money in the story of Nehemiah 5, where the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor among the exiles, who, when all should have been helping one another. So the people came back to Jerusalem, and then the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor. Here's what the poor say to Nehemiah We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. The problem was that those who had money were putting their, their personal gain before the well-being of their neighbors. They were putting money before people. This is the exact opposite of what Psalm 15:5 and the law in Deuteronomy is calling for. The second part of the couple is also a case of putting money before people by taking bribes. Here, the offense is also against justice since bribery is a crime and corrupts the courts. Putting these two wrongs together gives us a picture of the one who uses money wrongly to oppress others, like the villain Mr. Potter in the movie I mentioned earlier. This couplet goes beyond lending practices and taking bribes. It it goes to how we view money, to how we use the resources that God has given us. Do we use what God has given us to serve ourselves or to serve others? Are we generous with our money and time and talents? Do we view what we have as ours or do we to do with as we wish or or as the Lord's to be used for his purposes, for his kingdom, for his glory? The psalm ends with a single line. He who does these things shall never be moved. The righteous man, the one in whom is the fruit of a heart living for the Lord will be as Psalm uh, 1 verse 3 says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. The righteous man will be established by the Lord. The Lord will cause him to grow in righteousness. The Lord will draw him further up and further in. Before I close, I want to be as sure, to, to be sure to be as clear as I can. A life lived like this, a life following the law in every way without Christ, is not pleasing to God. A life not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. I had to restrain a strong urge to just read all of Philippians chapter three here, so I'll summarize. It is the, this is the Apostle Paul lambasting those who think they can earn salvation with a combination of bloodline and law-keeping. Paul says that there is no one better qualified to be saved this, in this way than him, but that all these things compared to Christ Jesus is just a pile of trash. It is only Christ. It is only his righteousness. It is only his life and his death and his resurrection that salvation depends on. We are saved from a life of empty striving by grace alone through faith alone. That's the gospel. We are sinners who are saved by someone outside of us, someone who did something we cannot do. I saw something somewhere on the Internet where I probably shouldn't have been um, this week that said "Jesus Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the gospel. That's not true, friends. That is not the gospel. That is the law. And we are not saved by following the law. We are saved by Christ having followed the law perfectly in our place and then dying on the cross in our place and rising again in our place that we might live a life pleasing to the Lord. Only Jesus kept the law perfectly. Only he has a right to claim the promise of Psalm 15 and never be moved. All this is true. It is true that we do not contribute to our salvation. The only thing we bring to the table is the sin that we need to be forgiven of. Christ has finished the work that we could not. And when we are saved, we will bear fruit. The Christian life is not a passive life. After we are saved, we do not sit back and say, Jesus paid it all, so I do nothing. We must strive with all of his energy for righteousness. As Paul says in Colossians 1, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully worked within me. Paul works struggling with all the energy of the Lord that he powerfully works within Paul because of Christ Jesus. Do you see, it's, it's by grace that Paul is saved, and it is by grace that Paul works. None of it is Paul's doing it on his own. None of it is Paul working to please the Lord in the strength of Paul. As we will see in our memory verses in a few weeks, Ephesians 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved as a gift in order that we would walk and live in righteousness. And as we walk in righteousness, God in His grace causes us to love Him more and desire to walk more righteously. There's such a difference in in working to please the one who saved us and working to earn something that can't be attained by our own effort. What we see in in this psalm is a picture of the one who is saved by the Lord and with his life pleases the Lord. Christian, this, this psalm shows us the virtues that God wants to see in you. Now is the time to ask, does he see them? Are they developing in you? If you are truly his, they must be. But this is not a matter of gritting your teeth and trying harder. It is a matter of trusting and loving Jesus more, of putting yourself in the path of grace, of reading your Bible, of hearing God's voice in his word, of praying and gathering with his people, of taking the Lord's Supper. As we do these things, as we take part in the common means of grace, the Lord changes us and causes us to bear fruit. If you desire this and you you see yourself falling short, as we all do all the time, call out to the Lord for help. He will hear you and he will help you. He will establish you. He will not let you be moved from before him. This does not mean that life will be easy, but it it does mean that you are safe in him. If you are God's, you may be shaken, but you will never be shaken loose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us. Help us to trust in Christ. Help us to turn to him and to his perfect finished work. To rely on his righteousness for our righteousness. Help us to be conformed to his image. And as we are, help us to be made more holy. Help us by your spirit to begin to look like the righteous man we see in Psalm 15. To glorify you in our character, in how we speak, and how we behave, in what we value, in our integrity, down to how we view and use the resources you have given us. Lord, we lay ourselves and all that belongs to us at your feet. Soften our hearts to be used by you as you will. For our good and your glory. In Jesus' name.